This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The first attestation that we have, for example, of fuck is that it would actually occur in names of people who intended to be taken seriously. And so you could have somebody like Roger Fuck by the Naval or Henry Fuckbutter. And those were actual names written down soberly, you know, with no ink on parchment or whatever they were using. And you could have Grope Cunt Lane as the name of a street where a gentleman might go for certain services. It's a big one today because the famous linguist and professor at Columbia University, John McWhorter, is my guest. John is one of the biggest names I've ever had on the show, so I was delighted when he accepted my invitation. He's also been a guest on many well-known shows, including a recent appearance on the Bill Maher program, where he said he believes anti-racism has become a religion. I should say at this point that John is himself black, and he has said he feels patronised by woke culture and critical race theory. He said of the famous book White Fragility that it infantilised and dehumanised black people. He's also been defined as a radical centrist, and he believes affirmative action should be based on class rather than race. We'll touch on the growing calls from the liberal left to censor language, as well as looking at language itself, with the main meal of the podcast episode focusing on John's latest book, Nine Nasty Words. Each chapter in his glorious book covers the origins of a different swear word. They are, among many others that are mentioned throughout, damn, hell, fuck, shit, ass, cunt, bitch, the N-word, and the other F-word thrown at gay people. The book had me laughing out loud numerous times, sometimes from sheer surprise and amazement at the accidental genius of our language development. It's just amazing thinking about where certain words come from. Honestly, full of surprises. As you'll get in this podcast, a bit more about John. He's written many books on language. He's an expert on Creole languages and how grammar changes with time. He has a truly fantastic and entertaining podcast called Lexicon Valley, where he talks all about funny language things. He grew up in Philadelphia and received a PhD from Stanford University. He's written for The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, The New Yorker, and every prestigious publication you can think of. You can follow him on John H. McWhorter on Twitter. I'm on AndrewGold underscore OK on Twitter and Instagram. If you're new, please follow me and subscribe to this podcast. Share it around. If you were drawn here by John, you might also like my episodes with James Lindsay, Helen Pluckrose, Andrew Doyle, and Stephen Knight, among many others. And there's a link to Nine Nasty Words, that fantastic book, in the show notes. The book is out at just the right time, actually, while people are obsessed with words and their meaning, as well as their seemingly inherent profanity. Why are some words rude and naughty while others are not? And how has that changed over the centuries? And what will the rude words be in a century to come? John has some ideas about that. He tackles all these questions and more in the main episode. By the way, just so you know, and it may be no great surprise, but just so you know, there are a couple of mentions of the N-word in this episode. Of course, not by me. Um, And it's certainly not my place to censor, judge, or in any way question John's language. 
but he does only use it in this episode very briefly and in the way a professor might, because he is a professor of linguistics, no less. Uh, we don't, however, linger too much on the N-word itself and its usage and uh, the whole thing around that, because you can get John's book for a whole chapter dedicated to it. And while we do talk about all things woke and racial, this chat is predominantly about words and profanity. And if you're not happy with that, well, you know, I'm not going to tell my listeners to fuck off, because even, even in jest, that would be too far. I should add that John gave the most spectacular answers imaginable to the 10 questions that I always ask in the bonus interview or the bonus questions. It felt almost too good to limit to the 60 or so people currently signed up, and I might release it for the whole public for free at some time in the future. But if you want to listen to that now, I fully recommend it. You can actually get it free on Apple by subscribing to my channel and getting a three-day free trial. You can just cancel straight after, but you might want to stick around and, you know, support the podcast. Look, I won't see your details if you sign up to that, so I won't even know if you've cancelled, so don't worry about it. On patreon.com slash andrewgold or the Patreon app, you can also get it. There's no free trial there, but you could just sign up for one month, £3 or $4 or whatever. Listen to all the bonus episodes and then just cancel if you are that way inclined. Um, I'll add a little teaser at the end to John's bonus interview, but his answers about woke culture, his favourite words, virtue signalling, and what he'd say to God are as insightful and profound as they are at times hilarious. So do sign up, get it free or cancel, whatever, just pay for a month. Look, it's worth your time, do it. Next week, I believe I'm talking to Angela Maxwell, the woman who walked around the entire world. And you wouldn't believe some of the things that happened to her on that journey. For now, though, it's John McWater. Can you hear my, my fan? I've put, I'm boiling hot, but so I've got a fan on. Can you hear that? Only when you mention it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, just... I, I can kind of hear it. I'm not going to be talking that much, so I can take my... Maybe I'll leave it on, and it's mostly you talking, so I don't know. Okay. Oh, are you hot? Is it hot where you are? Where are you? It's it's pretty hot. I'm in New York City. Yeah. Ah, oh. okay. I'm in Berlin here. It's just... It's like sweltering, like thir- in the 30... I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, though. But And you don't have enough air conditioning because it's Berlin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I can imagine. Why do they do that? I don't know. It's uh, It's hard about Europe. I always expect to be uncomfortable in the summer because it's very hard to get cool if you're over there. Oh, I've my whole life I'm just hot. I'm just always hot. Oh, <laughs> thank you for uh, joining me on this. It's uh, really a pleasure to have you on. I'm, I'm excited. Sure. Sure. <laughs> for people in Britain who who aren't necessarily aware of you, you're sort of an American Stephen Fry. Does that sound fair? Um. Yeah. I guess that I don't think of it that way, but. That is a pretty accurate assessment of my place in the firmament, such as it is here. Yeah. (laughs) It's the pleasure that you both seem to take in your work. Uh, That's what's very unique, I think, about you and about him, of course, as well. It's it's really to find someone who's that academic, who just takes so much pleasure and is able to communicate that. Is that something, particularly with linguistics, of course, is that something that was with you from an early age? Yeah. Um... That does describe me pretty well. And I think a lot of it is because one, I'm just, I'm a nerd, but I also went to Montessori schools. And so until seventh grade, I didn't have homework. I didn't sit in front of a blackboard watching a teacher put things up there. That was not my school experience. I had a really 
fortunate experience where I was allowed to do what interested me all day. And I think that really did shape me because for me, linguistics is about learning things that I find interesting and then also wanting to share them just like, just like you would with a new toy. And so it means that in terms of the linguistics research that I do, you know, most of it are not things I would share with the public, but none of it is things that nobody of the general public could possibly understand why I would like. There's a part of me that wants my linguistics research to be the sort of thing where somebody might say, oh, that's neat, if I could get it across to them. So yeah, there is a, a joy in it. I'm having fun when I do my linguistics. It isn't just, you know, the way I make a living. What led you to be interested in swear words? Because there's a story in your book about um, the word damn, a conversation you had with your father about it. Well, you know, to tell you the honest truth, it's not that I have a self-standing interest in curse words, although all of us do to an extent. What I wanted was to introduce people to some basic concepts of how language and linguistics work in a way that people would genuinely and viscerally enjoy. And so one way you can do that is to write about language on the internet, and Gretchen McCullough did that beautifully a couple years ago. You can get people interested in language by writing about universal grammar, and that's what Steven Pinker did back in the 90s. And another one of those topics is curses, because everybody wants to know where those words come from. And next thing you know, through the back door, you have taught people about the principles of language change. You've taught people about certain basic principles of grammar. So it wasn't necessarily me snickering and thinking, oh, I want to write a book about fuck. It was really, how do I write a book about language that people might pick up with genuine joy and come away from not only knowing some interesting nuggets of things, but getting a sense of how linguists look at things. And I expect there's um, perhaps more of an emotional resonance with swear words than anything else. And you write about uh, the difference between the hemispheres uh, and, and how that might make an emotional impact on somebody. Yeah, it's that... That's that cursing is something that emerges from the right brain rather than the left brain. The right brain is more about emotion, more about creativity. It's the, you know, the Dionysian side of the brain. And so ordinary language is processed in the left side of the brain in most people. So ordinary sentences where you're expressing basic vanilla information are left brain. Right brain is where these eruptions that we call curse words come out. And that's part of why they often don't make logical sense. If you say, what the hell is this? How would you parse what hell is in that sentence? What it really is, is a kind of decoration or flavoring. It's a bit of right brain seasoning in an otherwise left brain sentence. I've got a bit of a theory here that I've, I don't know what I'm talking about, but bear with me, <laughs> um, that whenever I've heard people in, in foreign language, like people who are speaking English as a second language, perhaps, you know, I used to live in, I'm in Germany now, uh, okay. when they swear in English, it's always made me cringe a little bit. And I wonder, do you think that's because I know, obviously on, a, on some subconscious level, unconscious level, that uh, it's not, those words are not in their right side of the brain. They're not that emotional for them to use. Whereas for me it is, and it feels a little bit like they're sort of penetrating a place that I didn't give them, that, that isn't the same for them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know what you mean when you hear our curse words, but in an accent. And you get the feeling it's not coming from the same place in them. And it really may not be. They may be deliberately executing the language and generating these things from their left brain. I don't know if there's research on that in particular. But yeah, the curses sound less warm. And they are even in a way less articulate because you feel like the person is doing them in quotation marks. Or even <laughs> they're more vulgar 
in a way, because they actually seem like they have meaning. Whereas if you're a native speaker and you use those words, <laughs> you know on some level that they don't mean anything in the direct sense. Yeah, I get that sometimes when Americans, uh, some Americans use the word wanker, and it's so British and it feels like they're doing it for my benefit almost. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and also it's often a little bit pretentious because for us, everything anybody British says sounds like Shakespeare. And so there's a certain kind of American who starts saying things like bloody and wanker and schedule. And you kind of think to yourself, oh, stop it. That doesn't make you smarter. It doesn't make you cooler. It's not going to get you into bed with people. Yeah, there's a little bit of that because it's not native. Yeah. I love that, that for some reason we sound clever. It's just the accent. And it really is just the accent. There's nothing more than that. It's but whenever just the I've been... vowels and the intonation, and it all just sounds like Shakespeare does. God. If you want mustard with that, that sounds elegant to me. You know, if somebody says, you want mustard with that, and then to you, it's just the way, the way you talk. It's so arbitrary, but it's very real. Yeah. Actually, it sounded quite northern and potentially working class the way you said it. I was trying to do somebody from something like, who, who was I doing? I'm doing people on Are You Being Served who are from, I'm doing Mrs. Slocum. That's, that's who yeah. that's supposed to be when she's angry. Yeah, exactly. I, I've never seen Are You Being Served, but you talk, you reference it a lot and it seems like you're a huge fan of the- I love it to pieces. <laughs> The old British stuff, the old English sitcoms. Very much, very much, yeah. Well, speaking of old sort of, uh, well, I guess it's not a sitcom, but a look, <laughs> when you talk <laughs> about uh, how some of the words we, we, we've we used, what are they, euphemism? I don't know what the right word is to say, sort of silly, softer words uh, instead of swear words. You use a few words that all like, because they are quite Americanized, all I could think of was the Rugrats and the grandpa in the Rugrats. And he says these words like conflabit and consarnit. Uh, what can you tell me about those kinds of words? Well, what's <laughs> it's funny. I have never actually seen Rugrats. My my children like Rugrats. The um, those euphemisms are always interesting because it shows that we want to be able to curse even if the curses are socially prescribed. And so, you know, consarnet is something that people have said. I don't know if anybody says it now outside of quotation marks, but they have said that because they don't want to actually say "God damn it" or you don't want to depict the character saying "God damn it." And you have lots of those euphemisms in particular with the curses that are about God and the curses that are about the body. And so you have shite and fudge and heck and darn. All of those are ways of cursing without cursing. And they just show the power and the attraction of profanity. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? 
the internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. I was in California a while ago and people, because you know they were saying it's hella cool for a while. People said, oh, that's hella cool. And they started saying it's hecka cool. That was a new thing. Was I hadn't heard that. And I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah. These, all these kids. I was looking after kids at like one of those children's, because summer children's camp. It's like every British person's dream to go out and look after kids for some reason, spoil kids who who make make fun of your accent um because you know what blew my mind actually was was the uh the journey from dam to don because i'd always i would you would think it's just people are just instead of saying damn they're just hiding it in a similar sounding word but it's more complicated than that isn't it exactly that's actually an interesting case because what darren actually is is something that starts with people saying by the eternal and that's something that men in particular used to say in the 19th century. And of course, it got shortened, and so it becomes ternal. And then dialect back then turned things like ternal into tarnal, just like you would say larn for learn. And then after a while, you end up having this tarnal blending. So there's a word damnation, and people start thinking, well, why can't you say tarnation? And it's this beautiful blend that then gets shortened into darn, which sounds kind of like damn, and becomes a way of saying damn without saying it. So darn isn't a real word, quote unquote. It's something that began as by the eternal, which was a a shortening. And next thing you know, you have this word that isn't a word. Oh my God. (laughs) I loved that. I, it was one of those ones where you have to sort of wake up your girlfriend or whatever and say, oh, did you know about Dan? <laughs> I hoped people would feel that way about it. Yeah, <laughs> I loved that. I loved that. She didn't. Um, <laughs> she just went, went back to sleep, annoyed. But, you called know. you a wanker, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, no, she's Argentine, actually, so she called oh, So she wanker. wouldn't say that. Okay. Yeah. I'd be annoyed if she did it because it would feel like... Because it would sound phony. Exactly. What would she say? Carajo. I don't know what she'd say. Um, <laughs> so I know typically I would I would uh, ask you all the questions, but I wanted to show you something, which was because you mentioned Hitchens in in your book, um, mm-hmm. so I knew you were aware of Hitchens, of course, Christopher Hitchens, mm-hmm. um, and I I had a quote from him in, in Hitch twenty two, and he said, um, "We were living in the Dartmoor village of Crapstone." 
a name for which I didn't much care because it could get me roughed up at school. In due time, we moved away, but to a village in Sussex called Funtington, which somehow wasn't the improvement for which I had been quietly hoping. <laughs> I wanted to share that with you because obviously there were, uh, a big part of the book, again, is, is there were all these place names that had crazy swear words. I mean, are they still around? Uh, like, um, Grobe Cunt Lane can't be around, can it? <laughs> no, you can't have that. But it used to be that words like that were not considered profane. They were just considered salty. And so the first attestation that we have, for example, of fuck is that it would actually occur in names of people who intended to be taken seriously. And so you could have somebody like Roger Fuck by the Naval or Henry <laughs> Fuck Butter. And those were actual names written down soberly, you know, with you no know, ink on parchment or whatever they were using. And you could have Grope Cunt Lane as the name of a street where a gentleman might go for, you know, certain, certain services. And that was considered ordinary. People probably chuckled here and there, but it was just a, the, the kind of thing that one could get away with saying. Those words don't become profane until roughly the 1500s. And it means that often our most vivid attestations of them are before the 1500s, because after that they go underground in writing. I laughed out loud at Gunker Cuntless. <laughs> All of this is perfectly ordinary. And, you know, you can see cunt used in you know, ordinary official sources as just what was the word for the vagina. At first, you could use it in anatomical textbooks. It's only later that you have what you have to, you realize now, it's such a euphemism, vagina. You know, what a Latinate word. Sounds like something made out of plastic. That's something that happens once the real word becomes unsayable. And so you have to have euphemisms like penis, vagina, urinate. Those are not real words in English. They are fig leaves. I still don't know what to say, actually. Do you, what would you, if you're, I suppose at the doctor, you'd say oh, something, you know, my penis, you would say, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. There's nothing in between, though. There's either you know, dick, which is vulgar. There's penis, which is, you know, makes you think of fluorescent lights overhead. But what about something just in the middle? In Old English, it was pintle. That was the word. You didn't laugh. It wasn't a euphemism. It was just there. And there are plenty of languages that just have a word. But to be, especially a Western language and to be English, is to not have middle ground words like hand, arm, and leg for those parts. And it's because the names of things like that became, in a way, profane. I think I say willy, which is embarrassing, really. <laughs> That's another one of those words. It's not vulgar, but it's childish, right? Like here we <laughs> might call it a PP or, so, or his thing, something like that. But those, again, are you know, childish. They're not neutral words. Is, it takes some of the, uh, I suppose, I want to say sexiness of, of using a word like fuck, especially when you're a teenager. You're like, oh, fuck. When you realize that people were using that 500 years ago or longer, it's it's now now it feels like quite an archaic old weird thing. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that those terms also wear out in that you can say what the fuck is this, but very commonly now it's becoming what the shit is this, and it, it feels kind of like a joke. But it's also stronger because fuck has been used for so long that it doesn't have the power that it used to have. Particularly when fuck came back above ground in roughly the 1960s, it started being used an awful lot, and it's at the point where it just doesn't have the strength that it once had. Profanity often goes through cycles like that. And and there's sort of a greater cycle at hand here, where we move from, uh, as you as you were saying, from religious words towards bodily words. And, and does that imply that we'll continue moving to something else? Words. 
Yeah, because at first it was about blasphemy, and so there you get the idea that, oh my God, is a bad thing to say, and all of the euphemisms for Jesus, such as Jeepers Creepers and G's and G. Then you move from that to profanity being also about the body, and so that's the grand old four-letter words like fuck and, and shit. Then it has already moved to profanity being about slurs. So what we think of as slurs, and therefore a different category from the bad words, are words that we treat in our current Anglophone culture exactly the way people who now are distant memories to us, or you know not memories at all, thought of words that are blasphemous or that are about sex and excretion. So things have moved from blasphemy to sex and excretion to slurs against groups. And if anything, that is a development in a good direction, if you ask me. Instead of it being about Jesus, instead of it being about your butt, it becomes about making fun of people who are disadvantaged in some way or who, you know, who deserve better. That can be seen as a kind of a moral or intellectual development, but it means that it's not that people curse more now. It's that the words that used to be considered curses are no longer curses in a way that an anthropologist would recognize. And in the meantime, we have new curses, and it's slurs like the N-word and various other ones. I mean, it's a complicated one, I guess, because as you say, those words seem to be more appropriately put in the right side of the hemisphere or, or or considered profane. Does the cycle imply that there'll be another step in 100 years and people will look back at us and go, why are we so worried about, about damn and darn the, or the equivalent of what we use now for, for groups? Yeah, one would assume because to have some sort of profanity is practically a universal in languages and human cultures. It's just, you know, what the culture decides to consider profane, how the culture does it. And so as time goes on, it might be about class. It might be about something else that society is very conflicted and uncomfortable about. And so it could be, for example, if climate change really does get to the point that we can see that we cannot live the way we used to and a great many people are seriously in danger, there might be some sort of euphemization or profanity that coalesces around that. It's very clear that in terms of trans issues, which I don't discuss in the book, that language is going to be used and not used in way that ways that will classify as profanity again. It just depends on what the society is hung up on and why. Speaking of, uh, well, not necessarily trans issues, but pronouns, um, I was quite yeah. amused to see that uh, we have more pronouns than I first realized or had ever thought <laughs> about. And, and what were the, the, there were two more, aren't there, that, were, that are profanity words? Well, it's interesting that... Um, ass is used in a way that has pr provided new pronouns. If you say, I'm going to fire his ass, you don't mean that you're going to you know, dismiss the person's buttocks. What you mean is you're going to fire him, but you're saying it with a certain profane flavor. And that means that his ass is a pronoun, just those two words together. It's become a pronoun. Also with the N-word, the N-word can be used as a pronoun. And it's a, something that you hear in the United States and you have to listen closely but somebody might say something like, a nigga is tired, and that means I'm tired. And it starts with, can you help a nigger out? And that's what somebody says when they're trying to, in a way, politely, gently, indirectly say that they want help, and they are usually a black man would say this. And you're euphemizing yourself, but you're referring to yourself. It's a short step from there to saying something like, a nigga ain't even eaten yet. And that means that I haven't eaten yet. So pronouns end up developing from profanity. It means that, you know, a slur against black people ends up becoming not only an in-group word that means buddy, and frankly, that's been discussed endlessly, but also it ends up becoming a pronoun. 
as does something like his ass or something like that shit. I hate that shit. You rarely mean feces. What you mean is I hate that except you're expressing it in a different way. So that that shit is what a grammarian would analyze as a new pronoun. So you end up learning about language change and looking at what happens with these profane words. So not only do they have interesting histories, but things that are happening to them right now teach you what language is really like. Does that happen outside of... Is it that we've just only used... It's almost like we're trying to be funny, that we're using... Well, I guess we are. We're only using swear words as additional pronouns. I suppose you could say, uh, can a guy get some help here? Could you, is a guy exactly. is a pronoun? Exactly. And in a hypothetical other English, somebody might start using a guy as a subject. You know, a guy's hungry, and the person might mean themselves. For all I know, there's somebody in Liverpool using a guy like that now. But that's the sort of thing that can happen. One step at a time, and next thing you know, you look back and you can't believe that it started where it was and has gotten to where it is. I suppose we can't keep saying one, can we, for, for that? I mean, and other <laughs> languages, example. other languages, I mean, French and German are filled with, with one, you know, on and man. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, and, and we just can't. I suppose it's too much like what the Queen would say. And I, I found myself saying it once or twice, and I've had to go, oh, no, who do you think you are, you idiot? You know, <laughs> and, and I think you talked about stuff like that shit um, as like a, a leveler. Very much. Yeah. What one wants to do with profanity often is you use it like liquor. It's profanity creates comfort between people using words like that, because what you're doing is saying that all of us are down here together. All of us are humble individuals. All of us are equal. Profanity can have that effect. And so often to use none of it is to come off as rather distant. To not use any profanity makes it seem as if you're holding a part of yourself back, because these words really are part of our essence. I was invited, and I don't want to go too into the whole sort of uh, woke culture thing, because we're talking about language, but but just on language, I was invited by a friend uh, recently, someone I respect and love, who she's an academic as well, um, literature and everything, and she invited me to come to a, a seminar about offensive language and, and how yeah. to use inoffensive language. And I found myself recoiling and sort of going, no, no, I'm not doing that. And she was going, but why not? You're not being open-minded then. And I didn't have a response except to say, I don't like that. I don't stop it. What, why was I offended by the concept of uh, <laughs> there being offensive language we shouldn't use and going to a seminar about it? Oh, you mean the idea that there are things that we just should not say and you were being asked to discuss that sort of thing? Yeah, I think it was more, it was all like, you know, these are, the, yeah, for us to all get along better we ha- and why we have to be careful about, which sounds like a nice thing, why we should be careful not to offend other people. Don't use this word, make sure you, and I didn't want to go to that. Well, I think that we have gotten to a point where a certain kind of person is forgetting that creating social change is primarily about being out on the ground trying to change the way things really are. There is a A particularly an academic way of looking at things that now is becoming increasingly mainstream that says that a way of creating meaningful social change is to police the way people express themselves and the words they use and the expressions they use. With the idea being that if people don't talk in a certain way, then the world will change in a certain way because people aren't having their attention called to certain things. And, you know, there is a certain sense in that, but it's gotten to the point that many people think of that as the main meal in social change. They think of that as the main aspect, the most important aspect of being a progressive person. I think that is a mistake, and I I worry Mm. because I think it's suspiciously easy 
You know, it's easy to tell somebody not to say something and to be mad and to shame somebody on social media. It's less easy to go out and knock on doors and it's less easy to go out and talk to people and to try to make a case for social change with people who are otherwise skeptical. But yeah, there's a meme afoot these days. And, you know, policing speech to an extent makes sense. I remember being taught, I had a girlfriend who was a self-professed radical feminist 30 years ago, and she taught me to say actor, even if the actor is female, or to just say chairperson. All of those things can get you thinking away from traditional notions of gender roles. I completely understand that. But the question is where you draw the line. And it's at the point where many people seem to suppose that teaching people not to say things is the most efficacious way of making a better world. I doubt if that's the case. You can't change the way people think. But as you're saying, I, I guess it can be a route towards uh, getting people accustomed to thinking a different way. Yeah, manners manners matter. But some people, yes, take, take it a little further than I would. It feels like it's an impulse. It's a similar impulse to that of sort of the, the religious conservative impulse of, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago uh, or 60 years ago. Uh, it is. Yeah. 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 Oh, and I think you've written, have you written, did I read that you wrote that about that, that it's religious, it's quite a religious thing at the moment? Um, yes, I, I do believe that it's, um, it's not a religious thing. It is a religion that has emerged. And that's a whole different line of my thinking these days. But I think that what is often called woke has gone further with a lot of people into what is literally a new religion that's committed to overturning power differentials. And so part of why it makes sense to so many people to police language in that way is that they feel like they're changing the parameters of power by discouraging us from thinking of, in particular, white men as superior to all other kinds of people. And so, yeah, there is a new religion. I call its members the elect. And I have a book coming out about that in October, and it's actually called Woke Racism, and it is much less cuddly than Nine Nasty Words, where I was enjoying myself and trying to give joy to other people. But Woke Racism is me in my contrarian, cranky mode. <laughs> and so, yeah, I didn't discuss those things very much in Nine Nasty Words, because I wanted Nine Nasty Words to be a book about joy and happiness and a post-pandemic treat. But there's another side of me that's very worried about a lot of developments in modern American, and uh, frankly, Anglophone society i think you you touch on something that i've i've heard from other sort of outwardly anti-woke speakers i had uh andrew doyle do you know who he is i don't think i do he did uh that titania mcgrath twitter thing is a, a, oh okay yeah oh yes i'm aware yeah. of that yeah <laughs> he's but he's behind that and so he he was on the show and he was he was saying after a while we were talking for a while uh, about all of this stuff and he's he said uh you know what, I am actually a bit tired of talking about this. Uh, because when you speak out against sort of the anti-wokes, if you, you know, you become an anti-woke, that becomes everything. And he said, you know, I've, I've been writing travel articles. I've been writing a book where I go to movie reviews. I've been doing all of this, but all anyone wants to talk about is the woke stuff. And that, that must get on it. So, so it must have been, was it a bit of a relief uh, to just put that aside for a minute and, and really get to the, the language with the nine nasty words? Um, yeah, and I always have um, both of those tracks going, my kind of jolly linguist track as opposed to my cultural contrarian <laughs> track. And so both of them are part of my 
my life. Only recently, to tell you the truth, has the woke stuff started to completely take over. And to be perfectly honest, yeah, it gets to the point where you feel like you're giving the same interview over and over. And to tell you the <laughs> truth, actually, this summer, I have, as of last week, stopped accepting offers to do podcasts and interviews about the woke stuff because I have the book coming in October and I will spend three months, you know, doing that same interview yeah. over and over again. And yeah, it gets to the point where people do start to forget that there's something else that you do. And of course, there's some people who really do want to do the whole woke issue and the cultural criticism issue full time. I have never been one of those people. For me, it is 50%. I think of it as a duty as opposed to the joy and the passion that I get from writing about linguistics. But you know, one thing that I'm noticing lately is that many people, and I completely understand this, they assume that the kind of linguist I am is the kind who writes about and thinks about language from a cultural perspective and in a way that fits in with all the things that I write about in terms of race issues. And that's actually not true. I'm a very nerdy linguist who's interested in, frankly, anything but English, unless I have to be. I you know, Languages all over the world, the way they change what happens when they come in contact. I'm actually not what is called a sociolinguist. I can play one on TV, but that's not what my dissertation was. It's not what I think about when I wake up. But, you know, it's People are always going to put you into pigeonholes because there's so many people we have to keep up with and, you know, how much attention can we pay to any one person. But I'm actually two people. And at any given time, you know, I'm putting together courses for the great courses company that are just on language and linguistics, not about sociolinguistic or cultural issues at all. I like to keep the two going. And only in, say, 2020, 2021 has that gotten difficult for you know, understandable reasons. But isn't, and this is a layperson's reaction to that, but isn't all linguistics sociolinguistics? Is, is it, I can't even imagine it's possible to separate the language, oh, I guess it is, but it seems hard to separate the language mm -hmm. from the society it's in. Yeah, and many linguists would applaud someone who, who said that. And to an extent, you are not a linguist if you're not thinking about social factors. But when you're looking at, say, how you got from, you know, by the eternal to darn, <laughs> that's less sociolinguistics than form, how forms change, what happens when words come together, how sounds change, etc. You don't necessarily need to think about society to look at that particular process or to chart how ass has become a pronoun and you end up doing a kind of a semantic analysis that's not really sociolinguistics it's the kind of linguistics that you would learn in an introduction to a linguistics class so yeah language is a social tool and so to really think about it in any real way you chances are you were going to think about larger society but linguistics starts as a very wonky kind of subject that's taught with problem sets and that is done best on the average, by people who are also good at math. The social aspect of linguistics is something that comes later in the way hmm. we are generally taught it and the way most of us think about it. Oh, man, I, I, I love all this. Um, <laughs> does, does it matter, then, going back to language, right? Well, it's still, mm -hmm. this, is, this is social, I suppose. Does it, you know, language is changing. Um, there's more and more sort of text, text speak and computer speak or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, what... What should we be telling our children? Because obviously, you know, and teachers and stuff, we want to mark them with correct English. Um, mm -hmm. But obviously that is changing. And do teachers prevent it from what should they do? Yeah. 
I think it's the most important thing is for teachers to understand that there will always be a standard form of language and that part of teaching is to impart the standard form of language to people, but that non-standard forms are not substandard. And I see society beginning to understand that more than it did um, a generation ago. But the idea is that the way somebody speaks, for example, in Britain, in the black country, there is a non-standard way of speaking that is, you know, now mostly spoken by people who are older. But it would be considered very quaint. Many people consider it cute but improper. Actually, the black country dialect is more complicated in a great many ways than the standard dialect. It's an absolute treasure. A, Mar a Martian coming down would not see anything deficient about the bizarre verb patterns in wow. black country dialect. And so it's a matter of just letting people know that there is no such thing scientifically as faulty speech unless the person has some sort of cognitive impairment. Any way that somebody talks is complex and nuanced. It's just that there's one form that always, for very arbitrary reasons, wound up in the shop window and is considered the proper form. And that is, now there are linguists, especially certain sociolinguists and anthropologists, who argue against that. They think that should change. All power to them. They're probably right. However, it's not going to change anytime soon. And so the job of schools is to teach the standard. But all teachers should also know that however else their students talk from home is also complex and rich speech in its own right. Are you concerned that uh, languages will start or dialects will start to all come together with globalization. It will all start. I already notice Americanisms not only in f the way friends of mine speak, but in how I speak, and, and Britishisms the other way. Uh, is that are we all going to talk the same one day? Um, no, it's not going to be all the same, but it's going to be more the same. And so we have seven thousand languages now. That probably will go down to a few hundred within the next century or three. And American English, of course, will influence other Englishes disproportionately because of the nature of the media and pop culture and the internet. But to the extent that there will always be billions of people and that that means that the billions of people will subdivide into societies where people talk more to one another than to people from the outside, there will be sub varieties of big languages like English, like Portuguese, like Russian. That won't stop. But there will be an increasing uniformity on the larger scale. Yeah, I guess like the Scandinavians might be first. They could, you know, they, they already do so much in English, don't they? You know, I've heard Scandinavians worried about that. And I have been in Scandinavia and been almost alarmed at how deeply English does penetrate urban culture in, say, Copenhagen. Yeah, it, you start mm. thinking to yourself, pretty soon, are these people actually going to be speaking English? But the answer to that question is no, because the question is, are people going to start speaking English to babies and toddlers? Are two Danish people going to mm. use this second language that they learned in school as opposed to the language that is most intimate to them with their kids. I can't see how that would start happening, even among the most urbane, English-fluent couples in Copenhagen or Stockholm or Oslo. But in terms of the general culture, yeah, in some places, I've also had the, that feeling in Amsterdam, and a little bit in, in Germany and in Berlin. If you're a tired American, if you're jet-lagged, you can forget for a second that you have a language challenge to deal with. If you're reading signs, if you're walking through the street and listening to people, there's a lot of English. And now Nowadays, especially American English. I think there are limits to how far that's going to penetrate, though. 
I get you see it sometimes. I, I'm thinking of like a couple, a friend I know uh, and his um, girlfriend. They're having a, a child, and he's Dutch and she's German, so they speak English together. So the family mm-hmm. would all will be English. And he'll go to school, and you know the language will be the language of the country. And so that's the other thing that people you learn to speak more from your peers than from your parents after a while. And that's why, for example, a child of immigrants who both have accents never has an accent themselves unless they lead a very isolated life. And so it's about what happens in the school, what will happen in the community. Languages change. And so there are youth varieties of, say, Danish and Swedish that are quite different from anything that happened before because people come together and they speak in new ways. There are you know foreign words that penetrate. There's English influence. The grammar simplifies a little bit. But it's still Danish. It's still Swedish. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I haven't asked you actually where I, I was going to ask at the beginning and I skipped over that question, but uh, wh- where does the word fuck come from? Well, you know, there are various theories about it, and it is safe to say that it was borrowed from mainland Scandinavian at some point when the Vikings invaded. And that is plausible, but I have, I'm uncomfortable with it because the reason people reconstruct it that way is because it doesn't pop up in Old English sources. But then on the other hand, Old English is well attested, but there's only so much Old English, and there are only so many topics that our Old English sources really address at any length. There are a great many Old English words that we'll just never know because they don't happen to have been written down. I think it's highly likely, given how many Germanic languages seem to have a kind of a word family of words that begin with F and end in something like K and then have some vowel in between that refer to things like moving back and forth and swiping something back and forth and you know, rubbing, <laughs> all sorts of things that kind of circle around the meaning of fuck. I suspect there was a word in Old English, fukan. That would have been the verb. And as I say in the book, I'll bet if you could go back in time to, you know, oldie England and you yelled Fukan in the middle of the street, people would turn around and they would know what you meant. But we will probably never see it in print. So it's a Germanic word. It may have been a borrowing from the Vikings because they were certainly doing a lot of, you know, Fuking when they came and married, you know, English women. But I don't know. It seems to me that something so basic was probably in the language already. And so I kind of give give voice to both of those theories in the book. Yeah, when I was reading it, I thought, but in German, they do say fick dich and ich ficker, like, mm-hmm. you know, so has that come back into German from the English fuck? Well, I think German already had its words like that. And actually, there's some people who think that English may have borrowed the word fuck from German, but that would be an unlikely pathway. But yeah, Germanic languages in general have this kind of fuck, fuck, fick, fuck root. And German has taken it in various directions. And I think English probably took it in the fuck direction. Did it take long to decide on the nine nasty words? Because I'm just thinking now that, you know, something like piss... Uh, you know, mm-hmm. which in, again, I'm mm-hmm. just thinking German. They say "verpistich" all the time, which sounds great the way mm-hmm. they say it. Did it take? Mm-hmm. Was it hard to settle on those words? Um, no, I think we all have a certain basic sense of what what the bad words are. You know, the ones that you know either get you smacked on the back of the head when you're a kid or or used to. And so it was just a matter of thinking about you know shit. 
and fuck, etc. For a while, I was thinking of leaving out damn and hell because they're not genuinely profane in our modern situation. But then on the other hand, they still are words that you spontaneously, you know, list off if you're thinking about what the bad words are. And they started as bad words. They're English's first profanity. And so I wanted to have a historical arc. There needed to be some sort of narrative tension in this. And so I start with damn and hell. And then I just thought to myself, this book also has to include slurs because they are our new profanity. And it was... I didn't love writing about the female aspects of things. To write about, I'll just say them one time, pussy, cunt, and bitch, was uncomfortable. I thought, I'm a man. There's going to be an audio book. I'm going to have to read, read this out. <laughs> For a while, I wanted to only use one of those words, but I was told by some women that, to be honest, I had to address all of them. But yeah, I, I, I put them in. And I think because of the nature of the Times that a lot of people, not also the New York Times, who published an excerpt about the N-word, I think many people think I wrote this book as a cultural critic who wanted to write a book about the n-word and then decorated it with you know shit and fuck etc mm. it was really the other way around i wanted to write a book about shit and fuck and i figured you know actually i have to get the n-word in too and honestly my sense was i've written about it endlessly before i'm not sure i have anything new to say but then again i forgot that repetition is the soul of being you know a pundit <laughs> or whatever i am and people wouldn't mind hearing me out on it again and many seem to be reading me about it for the first time but yeah i never knew that that part was going to get the attention that it did, but you know, we're in this racial reckoning since last summer. And, you know, the book has fallen into a different context than I wrote it in. Repetition is the soul of being. Is that Was that what you said? Being a pundit is what I said, or, or whatever I am, because I don't walk around thinking of myself as a pundit. But yeah, repetition is important. One has to realize it's like advertising. No advertiser thinks they've made their case by running a commercial on TV once. You have to do yeah. it again and again. I'm just I'm just writing it down uh, for when I argue with my girlfriend because she says I repeat myself so much and if I say <laughs> repetition you know but but maybe she doesn't want to be going out with an <laughs> advertiser does she? No, probably not. Trasco. So and tell me what what are the origins and and sort of the I suppose the the mystique around and and the offence of course around the f word when used about uh, homosexuals. Well, that word is really interesting because it begins meaning a bundle of sticks, and through a series of steps that nobody was aware of at the time, it ends up referring to gay men. The intermediate state is that the bundle of sticks becomes a person because you could use a bundle of sticks to fill out a standing regiment or army when it was being reviewed to make it look like there were more people. And so a bundle of sticks takes on a kind of personhood. That ends up being an insult aimed at women that you are just a bundle of sticks because you know that makes you unworthy. That's also applied to children. And so you can have children get out of here, you little faggot. I've heard you know, there's an Irish source that that apparently was being used as late as the 50s and 60s. And so, quote unquote, weaker individuals, unfortunately children, unfortunately women. And then it ends up being applied to gay men out of a sense that a gay man is a woman in some sense or weak in some sense. And the thing is, as recently as, you know, in my young adulthood, that word was considered a slur and salty. But for example, a top-ranked comedian like Eddie Murphy could use it in one of his, you know, internationally distributed routines. And there were some people who didn't like it. 
and he could kind of kick back at them, and that takes care of that. Today, that would never happen. Over the past about 25 years, it has become a profanity in the language, and its use can derail a career. So we've seen that evolution, similar to the one with the N-word. But yeah, the, that word is one of the most interesting ones in the book because of both its development in terms of history and in terms of the change in its usage just over the past few decades. Yeah, I think I, I'm totally on board. I get that there are some words that it's just respectful to not say there's too much baggage. I think the, the, the problem for me is that you have to then say uh, the F word or something, you know, and it sounds mm-hmm. uh, for somebody who's I consider myself very secular uh, and very mm-hmm. not superstitious in any way. And that sounds very silly, doesn't it? Um, I don't want to say that it sounds silly because there's so many very sensible people who would disagree and would feel ridiculed by our calling it silly. But I do think that we have taken our usage of those words further than is necessary in that we are told that we can't even use the words to refer to them. Mm. And so I, you know, and I guess I'm just getting old. I'm 55. But when I was 30, you could say nigger in a conversation on the radio, and not too much, you have to use taste, but you could use it to refer to the word. Usually you were criticizing it, but you didn't have to say the N-word. And I remember when that hegemony came in in the late 90s, I, I found it a little childish. I would even use that word. But, you know, it's become such a matter of sensitivity that you have to go with the herd. And so, yeah, F-word, I know what you mean, but this is it's just a matter of changing changing senses of not only politeness, but it's about profanity. It's not only that we're supposed to euphemize, it's that it's considered blasphemous in a way to actually use those words. So I I think it's gone beyond childish. It's at the point where we're talking about what's evil to many people. And you might question what people's conception of evil is, but I think it's gone beyond the infantilization. I guess it's also like people have got such low expectations of others and they think so lowly of other people. So uh, if you use it in reference to some, you know, you're referring to it as a professor or something, it's like they want to assume that you secretly just, just like you said about writing the book, you secretly just wanted to write about the, the word that we're not supposed to talk about, you know? Yeah, there are people who would, there are people who find attractive an idea that, There are people who just want to go back to the past, people who want to be evil, people who want to be mean, people who want power differentials not to be overturned, people who want white men to stay on top. I think that that demonization of people who just feel differently is an unfortunate aspect of the religious part of our you know our our woke movement these days in that i think there are actually very few people who have such evil and backwards intentions but yeah there is some of that and then there's always the slippery slope notion which is a hallmark of intelligence i think in modern thought the idea if that if you start with one thing suppose you're going to have this you know deluge that happens afterward but i think sometimes you have to realize that social history makes that kind of slippery slope highly unlikely i find it very hard to imagine for example in america where you know white people go back to using the n word the way they used it in 1950 it would be implausible mores and basic psychology has changed so much that that slippery slope would be unlikely and anybody who thinks that that would happen needs to you know propose some historical analog when has that sort of thing happened in a modern society with a word or a concept but you know not everybody has time to think about it that much and the slippery slope is starts as an intelligent 
as a marker of basic intelligence and engagement, but it can be over-applied. For the same reason, then, should we not be worried about people uh, on the other side introducing, uh, I suppose, new definitions for for genders and things like that? Uh, I, I guess uh, that argument can sometimes be used that it's a slippery slope or, or whatever. But should we? Should are you concerned by that sort of movement? Um, no, I think. Um from what I've seen so far, that sort of movement is just acknowledging a reality about humanity that had been suppressed, ridiculed, and denied for a long time. I do not imagine that people are going to propose so many fine-grained distinctions that the typical human being can't process them. That's rare in a language. It's not going to go that far because nobody could possibly you know, stand up to the requirements with any kind of intelligence. So no, we're dealing with a certain kind of change, especially in the use of the word they, but watching people under about 20 use it as fluently as they do makes me pretty sure that you know anybody who doesn't want to do it, well, that person will no longer be alive after a certain point, and people will write books about how some people felt about the new they in the early 21st century. Mm. But these things can be challenging day to day, especially when it's pronouns, which are seeded so deeply in our cognition. It's hard to change your behavior with pronouns, but it can be done. And I think uh, I am not burdened by that sort of thing. Yeah, I'll just use that shit in my ass. <laughs> and those are always available too. Exactly. Yeah, I suppose. Would you, would you ever, last, last, Actually, no. What? No. Screw the woke stuff. I'm, I'm bored of it as well. Um, I've I've had so you know James Lindsay and people on, and I think the listeners <laughs> also must be tired of hearing that stuff as well. Um, I got one last question, and it's nothing to do with any of that, uh, if you don't mind. But I know that you're. Uh, I think I think I'm right in saying you're a vocal critic of the. Is it called the Sapir Wharf? Um, Thing? Yes, yes. The superior war hypothesis. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is uh, from a the film Arrival. Obviously, the, the hypothesis existed before the film that came out last year the, that I really enjoyed. Um, but could, <laughs> could you just quickly, briefly explain that uh, what what that is for for us, you know, lay people or whatever, and, and where you stand on it. Well, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis is that the way a language's grammar works channels its speaker's brains so that if you speak Italian, you're living in a different acid trip than if you're speaking Japanese. And not because of the cultures involved, but because of the structure of the language with the way the vocabulary happens to divide the world up. And that's a narcotically interesting idea, the idea that if a language doesn't have tense, then you're either less likely to think about time or more likely to think about time. The idea that if Russian doesn't have one word for blue, but it has a word for dark blue and a word for light blue, that you might see blue more vividly. All of that is great, and the media loves it, and there's a certain kind of college professor who loves to teach it. But the problem with that is that for every way that that perspective makes it look like somebody is cooler than English speakers in the way they see the world. There's some other way that that language makes it seem like those people are dumber than English speakers. And if you have the grits, you have to take the gravy, as some people say. And so if you want to say that Russians see blue more vividly, then because of the way Chinese works, you have to say that Chinese people are not as sensitive to hypothetical and counterfactual situations as English speakers are. And that means that, frankly, the Chinese are a little dimmer than we are, that the language makes you a little dumber. There are all sorts of contrasts between languages where you would have to say something uncool about a language as opposed to something cool. So I'm very skeptical of it, and I realize that 
there has long, even before woke, there has been a certain cultural cachet to superior Warfianism because a lot of it is used to show that languages that are not written and are obscure and are indigenous are as sophisticated as or more sophisticated than English. And that is very much a fact. Tiny, obscure indigenous languages usually are much more complicated than anything wow. that's ever existed in English. But the Spear of Wharf hypothesis is often used to back that up, to say that, well, these people, you know, they, they process more kinds of water, more kinds of snow, you know, more ways of putting something into or on top of something. And all those things are true in terms of the one-on-one -on -one comparison. But if you really look at how languages differ from one another, it's just as easy to insult indigenous languages as to praise them if you apply this perspective. And, you know, as I write in my book, The Language Hoax, Mandarin makes, you know, if you look at Mandarin from that perspective, the Chinese look like dim bulbs in a great many ways compared to English because it's a more telegraphic language than English. So I think that language does influence thought in small ways. The kinds of things I'm talking about can be shown in psychological experiments to have tiny little influences on the way people perceive the world. But for it to be depicted as a worldview, as really making people different persons it's just too dangerous to hold up so that's my perspective on that hmm and it's a it's a fascinating one did you like the film arrival i like the film i you know i i think many of us have this thing for amy adams and it was very <laughs> interesting it was very well done but it was utterly absurd i mean yeah. the idea that it's putting across is extremely seductive and hopelessly unscientific don't kill my dreams john <laughs> i'm sorry about that <laughs> i love that idea that some aliens will come down you know, obviously as you say it's seductive and and i think it, even on a smaller level it's seductive the idea that just different languages different different ways of thinking because it's almost supernatural it's almost religious it's this thing of there's something Definitely. else out there something beyond oh, yeah oh it's a very attractive idea i'm attracted to it just like anybody else but scientifically it's very difficult to support i want to believe <laughs> There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the one and only John McWhorter. I didn't ask him in the end if his surname had anything to do with words, as in the German Wort for, for word, and McWhorter, you know. And I wanted to ask if his name was an influence for him in starting his linguistics. That is something we'll never know. But it was great, and I'm just going to show you now, as promised, a little clip from the bonus interview with John. What turns you off? I am very turned off by virtue signaling. It's something that I find truly revolting, and I look back on myself as a kid, and I realized that before that term existed, I didn't like it. I really don't like it when people do things that they ordinarily wouldn't and often that are harmful or that take energy away from other things just to show that they are good people. And, you know, more specifically, human tribalism bothers me. There's a basic impulse to humanity to have a tribe. And, of course, it's, it's basic to an extent. And, of course, you want human connection. But there's a certain point that comes soon where tribalism often makes people, first of all, as we all know, do really mean things, but then also just to turn the brain off and to not think about things that they might otherwise think about because your tribe is supposed to think about it in a certain way. That aspect of humanity is my least favorite. That's amazing. I've got nothing to add to that because that's perfect. I don't want to be too sycophantic because I sound tribal about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish... 
I wish it were more natural to humans to be individual, but it isn't. Yes. It's hard to be an individual. You don't want to be an individual. Most people don't want to be an individual. But if you're not a joiner, and I'm not a joiner, then you look at the rest of humanity and you think, boy, a lot of you might find it gratifying to be less tribal. And I think a lot of them would look at me and think that I seem peculiar and you know sterile and hostile and that I need to be more like them. And for all I know, they might be right. But yeah, I would say that viscerally, that's my answer to that question. Yeah, I definitely join your tribe on that one. Um, <laughs> so what is your... It's a good one for you, actually, this, these questions. What is your favorite curse word? So you can get the rest of that on patreon.com slash andrewgold or the Patreon app, or now on Apple. Just hit subscribe. You might need to update your phone for the option to be there. And if you want, listen to that, listen to everything else and cancel before you have to pay. I don't care. Just do it. Sign up, listen to that, uh, and maybe you stick around. Who knows? I'd certainly appreciate it if you did. But wow, did John have some phenomenal answers. Quick shout out to my newest Patreon, Miriam. I didn't hear from you, so I didn't know if you wanted to be anonymous or not, which is why I haven't read out your last name. But thank you so much, Miriam, for signing up for the whole year. It's much appreciated. Much appreciated sounds like it's not really appreciated. That's It just sounds uh, like a template. So it's not just much appreciated. I really appreciate it, and I'm very happy about it. Claudine who I talk to a lot on Instagram chat, uh, just extended her membership from monthly to annually as well. A lot of people now taking that option. Thank you so much for your support and loyalty, Claudine. Again, if you're new to this, please do subscribe to the podcast. Leave reviews on CastBox and Apple. There were no new ones this week. Very sad. And tell your friends to start listening. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram where I usually upload video teasers. That's andrewgold underscore OK. John is John H. McWater on Twitter. And his book, Nine Nasty Words, is available in all the normal places, including the show notes to this episode. Fantastic book. Honestly, it's great. And join me next week when I'll be talking to Angela Maxwell, who walked around the entire bloody world. And boy, does she have some stories. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.